0: It is Tuesday, September 10th here in Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to the Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schauff. With me, as always, is Jared Small. And Jared, we know that it's a regular season now because
1: I'm tired. I'm already tired, too. I think my head just Stop spinning from week one. During the season, it's always like a race to digest as much as you can from the previous week, and then you know start digging into the next week.
0: I know, even as week one's still playing itself out, we're doing rankings for week two. I'm like, how am I supposed to project these Texans when I'm about to watch them play against the Saints? So, well, we figured out, and at least we don't have double headers for that purpose going forward. But we did get. An awesome finish to Saints-Texans on Monday night. We got an impressive performance from the post-Antonio Brown Raiders after that. We've got a lot to react to here. And the familiar refrain for week one is to not overreact to what happens. But Jared, in a lot of cases, what may seem like an overreaction after one week of games will actually at some point prove to be an appropriate correction now that we actually have seen some real football and have more to base these opinions and our fantasy decisions on.
1: Yeah, you know, the the longer I've played fantasy football and the longer I've been doing this and, you know, doing this podcast with you, I I think now it's better to err on over- Reacting to week one than underreacting, and of course, you know, if you react and change your opinion on stuff in week one, it's not always going to be right. But I think more often than not, we should we should be weighing this stuff this stuff pretty heavily. Yeah, I
0: mean, that's a key thing we all have to keep in mind. Nothing that we do is going to be all right. No, <laughs> not all of the rankings that we do before the season are not going to be perfect. The changes that we make in season are not going to be perfect. You just. And you can't just have one blanket rule for, you know, all situations. You have to kind of take the context of everything, make the decisions as you go. Don't be scared to, even this early in the season, kind of scrap a plan that you had coming in and go in a different direction. At the same time, we're not going to scrap everything that went differently than we expected in week one. We're going to sort out some of those situations in the show today. That's kind of the main point. On DraftSharks.com right now, you can find our weekly free agent focus articles for both offense and for the IDPs. Those hit the site every Monday. We email out an early version Sunday night to DS Insiders uh, once the afternoon afternoon games end on Sunday. We have adjusted our rest of the way rankings. Of course, those now take place at the preseason rankings. Now that we're in the middle of this thing, you can find our week two rankings up on the site right now as well. Those also obviously can factor into your waiver decisions this week. We're going to get to a busy wide receiver landscape on the waiver wire on this show. We're going to get to, to our top team defense streaming options for not only this week, but the week after. Uh, but first, Jared, let's go ahead and start overreacting to some of the things that happened from week one. Let's call this first section. This is going to go differently than I expected. And Jared, the first one I've got up for this is the Baltimore offense And I don't think any of us expected the Ravens to go into this game and lose it. (laughs) And if they had won like 28 to 10, we'd be like, all right, that went about like how we expected, but 59 to 10, 643 total yards and a near perfect passing day for Lamar Jackson, 17 to 20, 324 yards, five touchdowns. I mean, things went differently than we
1: expected. It just looked really easy. And I don't know how much we can take away from this game with the Ravens offense. I'm definitely open to Lamar Jackson being a lot better and a lot more of a productive passer than I thought he was going to be this season. But to me, the biggest takeaway from this game is to attack the Miami defense. They don't have good personnel to begin with. And it looks like at least some of those guys are already sort of quitting on the team. We know, you know, it looks like they're tanking. We heard reports that there's already some players Asking to be traded. So that's my biggest takeaway as for the Ravens offense in wait and see mode, another great matchup for Lamar Jackson and co this week against the, the Cardinals. I, I agree with that takeaway on the Miami defense. I mean, we expected the whole team to be, to be bad.
0: The whole team is worse than we expected. And I think that's going to enhance the outlooks for opponents on both sides of the ball going forward. As we saw in week one, Lamar Jackson Like you said, I'm open to him being better than I expected him to be. Frankly, I was already open to that possibility. It's just such a loaded position. The the degree to which they scored and moved the ball in week one now has me a little bit more worried that I was underrating him heading into the season than I expected to be. The other two big ones were Marquise Brown and Mark Andrews. Marquise Brown is one that I want to wait to react to because the performance is huge and, and he basically started out immediately doing what we knew that he would do at some point. Four catches, 147 yards, two touchdowns, TDs from 47 and 83 yards out. But we have to keep in mind he only played
1: 14 snaps in that
0: game and ran 10 routes.
1: I take that as a positive. like th- th- This guy's gonna see more action as we move along. Remember he was sidelined pretty much all summer recovering from that foot surgery it's not like there's you know this loaded wide right receiver depth chart that he's not going to be able to you know ascend to the top of so i you know i think we're going to see his playing time climb as early as in week 2 he's still going to be a volatile player you know he that's just the type of big play small receiver he is it's still going to be a low volume passing game so you know don't expect Brown to be someone you can count on every week for you know double digit fantasy points but I think there's going to be more big games like this for him this season
0: yeah he should come off of waiver wires this week let's not go putting him in must start territory just yet though
1: yeah I mean on, on the other hand the next two games are against the Cardinals and then the Chiefs so I mean good good spots for the Ravens pass offense you, you'd like to be able to count on you know more then 14 snaps going forward. I think his snap rate's gonna rise in week two, but you know, we'll we'll see. Yeah, I'd be curious to see that. Mark
0: Andrews, is, of course, the other one. So I I guess after he goes eight targets, eight catches, hundred and eight yards, one touchdown. I'm willing to admit that I I underrated him. Let's say I underrated him. <laughs> the one thing though I I want to see what happens going forward is he only had two targets at halftime in this game. Now I don't know if that's an indication of his role going forward or just like how this game went because besides him, Marquise Brown was the only other Raven who had more than one target. So even at two targets, Mark Andrews was the number two receiver in the first half.
1: Yeah, again, it was a funky game. I'm not sure, you know, we're going to look back down this season and say, you know, maybe we couldn't take that much away from, from this matchup against the Dolphins. But Andrews looked good. I I liked him as a player. Um, really should have had another touchdown. He got held in the end zone, would have prevented a pretty easy touchdown for him. But you know, the, the, my biggest takeaway was his usage was nice. He was on the field a lot more than what we saw in the preseason, and you know he did see those targets, even if they were mostly in garbage time. So yeah, he he's definitely in the tight end one mix because again, you know, there's six or seven tight ends we can really count on. So beyond those, Andrews definitely. Worth grabbing if he's available in your league, and again, you know they they had those two nice passing matchups coming up.
0: And I feel like that the tight end one fringe got a lot more attractive over the weekend. We'll see if we happen to see everybody's best game of the season right away in that range. But I mean, Mark Andrews looks better than I expected. TJ Hawkinson looks more—I don't—I hesitate to say dependable. Looks like there's a
1: better chance of him being dependable than we might have expected. Yeah, Uh, I mean. Hawkinson's ready to make a big impact. It's just if they use him. That's another game where that Lions-Cardinals game, the pace was already up. It goes into overtime. I think the Lions ran like 80 plays or something. So, you know, everyone's a little inflated, but Hawkinson definitely looks ready to be a fantasy factor.
0: And since we're talking about those tight ends, Darren Waller's another guy in a similar range. I mean, I was going into the season thinking, there are so many, like, maybe this guy could be this tight end options that I didn't see a reason to really... Reach on Waller, who had gone three years without accomplishing much in the NFL besides getting suspended, uh, finding a new team, switching positions. But team high eight targets, seven catches, 70 yards in the opener, you know, was the top target, like I mentioned in that game. And the Raiders' number two wideout behind Tyrell Williams now is Ryan Grant. So the path for Darren Waller to remain a top two target for the Raiders the rest of the year is pretty clear.
1: Yeah, I mean, we'll never know for sure, but I I'm sure Antonio Brown's departure is going to end up being big for Darren Waller. It was awesome to see Tyrell Williams' big game on Monday night, but you know, just watching that game, it looked like Darren Waller was like the featured guy in that passing offense. There were a lot of plays where you could tell it was just designed to get him the ball. So yeah, super encouraging opener for him, and I, yeah, I think he like Andrews is now right in that lower end tight end one discussion. The Indianapolis offense is another thing that that looks like it's going to
0: go differently than I expected after the Andrew Luck retirement. So I think I said on last week's podcast, at least one of them, that I wouldn't be shocked if the Colts ended up faring okay Mm -hmm. in this game with the Chargers, but in going for 376 total yards. Only two Chargers opponents reached that number all of last year. So I think it was better than we could have reasonably hoped for the Colts in that spot. Jacoby Brissett was 21 to 27. 190 yards, seven yards per attempt. Kept it fairly short, which, you know, not a surprising thing in his first start there. But, you know, decently efficient. Two touchdowns to T.Y. Hilton. Hilton went eight for 87, two touchdowns on nine targets. At this point, I guess my big takeaway here is I'm not as concerned for T.Y. Hilton or Marlon Mack as I thought I might possibly be coming out of week one.
1: Yeah, the Colts should have won this game. Adam Venteri missed uh, two field goals and an extra point. So by the way, if you have Venteri, I'd start looking for another kicker I'm not sure... How much longer he's going to last i'm sure the colts will give him a bit of a leash but um he, he might be done yeah i actually just watched this game because i'm doing the fantasy visions for us this week a few takeaways yeah like you said Brissett was definitely conservative his average depth of throw was like 6.4 yards it was one of the five lowest of the week so i, I do still think ty hilton's ceiling probably isn't what it was and I, of course i say that he just scored two touchdowns but i guess his, his big play ceiling probably isn't what it was with an andrew lock but he still Looks awesome. He's still the featured guy in this passing game. So I think Hilton's fine as a wide receiver, too. Marlon Mack, 25 carries for him. That was the highest in the NFL in week one. The Colts went 52% run in this game, despite trailing for most of it. So it sure looks like they want to be a run heavy team per second, play conservative, just don't lose it. So yeah, I think Marlon Mack um, with this type of volume, he's going to be fine. He still saw zero targets in this game. Naheem Naheem Hines saw four. So that's the concern with Marlon Mack. But, you know, if he's going to get. 18 to 22 carries per game, zero targets doesn't hurt as much.
0: Right, if they're more like the Seahawks in terms of play calling than the Colts from last year, then it's less of a concern for for Marlon Mack to not get target volume. So yeah, I mean, Justin Alex on those, and, and I think it's important to remember with Hilton that yeah, his ceiling is certainly not as high with Jacoby Brissett as it was with Andrew Luck, but we were also paying less over the last couple weeks of drafting to get T.Y. Hilton than we were when Andrew Luck was there. So he was in the wide receiver two territory. And so if you got him as you know wide receiver 19 or something, then that now looks like a level that he can hit and maybe even climb a few spots past that by the end of the season.
1: Right, yeah, I definitely agree. And um, Devin Funchess had the broken collarbone in this game, so he's out for at least eight weeks. That's not going to hurt T.Y. Hilton's target share.
0: Yeah, and I realized uh, afterward that on play draft, um, Devin Funches is actually my highest-owned wide receiver.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I have plenty of
0: Funches too, so I'm with you. Oh, well, we'll move on from that to a couple other receivers. DK Metcalf started the game for Seattle despite that August knee surgery, tied Jerron Brown for second among wideouts and snaps, played 77% in that game against the Bengals, and six targets were second on the team only to Chris Carson seven. Metcalf caught four balls, had a team-high 89 yards, I would not have bet that he would do any of those things in his first game out.
1: In his first game out, like three weeks after having knee surgery. Very surprising. This was another kind of funky game that I'm almost going to write off as far as the target shares go. I mean, two targets for Tyler Lockett. Chris Carson leads the way with seven. But yeah, DK Metcalf looked impressive. He's clearly a top two wide receiver on this team already. Um, The the passing volume is still a concern. You know, Russell Wilson, just 20 pass attempts in this game. I'm very, sure, you know, that's almost where the Seahawks want him to be on a weekly basis. But Metcalf, sort of like Tyler Lockett, with his skill set and with Wilson's efficiency, you know, Metcalf can be a guy who only needs five or six targets to have a nice fantasy day.
0: Yeah, now I still think he was overpaid for most of the people who drafted him for most of draft season. Like if you were taking him in round nine or 10, then a six target game, four catches is really what you should be expecting from a player going in that range. So if that's what you paid for him, it's not a revelation, but I will say that I was not expecting DK Metcalf to get off to that fast a start. And I'm, I'm now more interested in his 2019 than I expected to be. Yep, yeah, me too. The last thing that I'm changing my view on Terry McLaurin, and we kind of talked more about him in the August podcast, yeah. about him potentially being an exciting option. After his week one, though, Do you remember when Mel Kiper had his (laughs) mock draft that put Terry McLaurin in round one and we all laughed at it? And now all of a sudden it looks like Mel Kiper was the only one who had Terry McLaurin appropriately placed.
1: That I forgot about that. That's a that's a great point. Yeah, and shout out too to um, Ben Standing of the Athletic. He had that interview with Jay Gruden like mid-August, where Gruden was just raving about Terry McLaurin. And then we got to the preseason, and McLaurin was like nowhere to be found. He wasn't even playing much with the first team. Like, he might have had one or two catches in the preseason altogether, but. Comes out in week one, plays 93% of the snaps, seven targets. McLaurin is eighth right now among wide receivers in air yards. And if you watch that Eagles-Redskins game, that's not a surprise you saw. Case Keenum take multiple deep shots to Terry McLaurin so yeah I I think he's the real deal I mean there's still concerns with this Redskins offense but it's also a team that's going to be playing from behind quite a bit I mean Case Keenum threw it 44 times in this game we can't expect that many attempts every game but I think you know 35 to 40 is sort of where he might be considering I think the Redskins are going to be playing from behind a bunch
0: yeah Terry McLaurin was awesome five catches 125 yards one touchdown on seven targets, had a 69-yard touchdown. He should have had a 60-yard touchdown Mm -hmm. as well, but Case Keenum overthrew him when he was open. There was this other terrific catch on the sideline that set up a Washington field goal late in the first half. Uh, It was just like the kind of catch that your number one receiver makes for you. The seven targets are only about 16% of Washington's 44 total pass attempts, but I think that there's a better chance – that his percentage climbs from that level as the season wears on, then
1: that he just stays a 16% share guy and they throw fewer times. Yeah, it should climb it. I mean, I don't think it's crazy to say that McLaren's already the best wide receiver in Washington.
0: Yeah, I think we'll sort out the waiver wire wide receivers later yeah. in this show. Uh, before we get out of this section, Jared, anything else that, that you're kind of changing your mind on or is going differently than you expected?
1: Yep, I got two more here. The first is John Ross, who I I loved this guy coming out of Washington, and the Bengals did too. Obviously, that they made him the ninth overall pick, and obviously he was a disaster through his first two seasons. But he he looked like a first round pick in this game against the Seahawks this past weekend. Um, you know, obviously had the big numbers. Team high twelve targets, I think, is is the big takeaway. Um, you know, if he's going to see that type of volume in this offense, which, by the way, this offense looked better than I expected in their first game under Zach Taylor. So, you know, we we might get more value out of Cincinnati than we thought we were going to. Thank goodness, because I have lots of Andy Dalton shares yeah. from.
0: Best ball drafts over the summer, too. And, you know, we were going into the game thinking oh, Damian Willis is going to start in this. That can't be good news for John Ross. Apparently, it had nothing to do with John Ross because, like you said, he led the team in targets.
1: Yeah, and I think he was up, uh, I think he was 82% of the snaps for John Ross. So he was basically a full-time player, even though Willis officially got the start.
0: And Seattle, by the way, once again, is definitely not a scary place to
1: play <laughs> your fantasy offensive players this season. Yes, agree. Not not a great defense. My second thing that's different, Lashawn McCoy, he can be good in this Chiefs offense. I still think, you know, he he's well past his prime. Um even in week 1 here, um in Pro Football Focus's elusive rating, McCoy was 22nd among 34 running backs with 10 plus attempts. So he was just sort of average, but I'm just not sure it matters that much in this Chiefs offense. McCoy had 10 carries for 81 yards. Um, you know, still was out-snapped, out-carried, out-targeted by Damian Williams. Still think Williams is the back to own in Kansas City. But if it's going to be, you know, something close to a 50-50 split, I think Lashawn McCoy can, you know, at least be a running back three or flex as well.
0: Uh, yeah, the reason to like McCoy here is the reason to like Damian Williams. I don't think Damian Williams is that good either, but they're playing for the Chiefs. There are going to be lots of points scored, and whoever gets those opportunities is going to score some points. I, I'm frankly happy that I have no in-season lineup setting shares of this Chiefs backfield because I think it's going to be frustrating going forward.
1: Yeah, maybe, but I I think the upside that really both these guys are going to bring every week is going to sort of offset some of the peaks and values we get. I mean, you're going to have to accept some down games, but again, I think both these guys are going to have plenty of big games this season. Yeah, I can see that.
0: Anything else from that section before we move on? Nope, let's move on. I am not yet worried about Devontae Freeman. Uh, He opened with what might be his worst matchup of the year against the Vikings, and his team fell behind early as well. I know that Ito Smith ended up getting close to the same number of carries. I don't expect that to continue because I don't think Ito Smith is very good, and I do think that the Atlantic coaching staff likes Devontae Freeman, and they were talking him up all summer about how strong he looks after coming back from his injury. So. I'm going to chalk this one up to a bad spot that I expected it to be going in. If Freeman gets another negative matchup against Philly this week, I would still use him because I think it should be a good game points-wise. But don't be shocked if there's another sluggish fantasy week for Freeman. Then beyond that, I think it gets a little better at Indy, Tennessee, at Houston,
1: at Arizona, Rams, Seattle, and then the Week 9 bye. I'm a little worried about Devontae Freeman. And like you said, we didn't expect him to have a big game here in Minnesota. And and really the entire Falcons offense struggled. But the snaps were 50-50 right down the middle between Devontae Freeman and and Ido Smith. And I think some of that was late in the game when the Falcons were out of it. They had Freeman out. Opportunities here. So carries plus targets were 12 to 7 in favor of Devontae Freeman. I, I, I was hoping for a bit better of a split there in favor of Freeman. And we'll see. Again, it's just one game. So yeah, I'm definitely still sticking with Freeman as a starter in week two, but you know, definitely keeping an eye on his play and how this, how this backfield is divvied up between and Edo Smith.
0: on Johnson had 16 carries in Detroit's game. CJ Anderson had 12, uh, and then Carrion Johnson, JD McKissick each had two targets. So you, when you combine that with lackluster production for Carrion Johnson on his touches, I think it's, it makes sense to be worried about Carrion Johnson right now, but Here's why I'm not worried about him yet. 57% of the running back carries for Detroit in that game went his way. Only eight guys in the entire league beat that last year. So, you know, it doesn't look like a big split between him and C.J. Anderson, but we're actually talking about a solid split workload-wise if you look at all of the running back situations around the league. Kerryon Johnson doubled C.J. Anderson's snap count in the game nearly. I think it was like a, a snap short of doing that. And then J.D. McKissick... I know that they match targets against Arizona. Do you think that they're going to do that the rest of the season? Because I sure (laughs) don't.
1: I I hope not. Um, But man, I'm less worried about on Johnson than Devontae Freeman. I'll say that. But this workload split is sort of what I was worried about after watching the preseason. And I think it's not horrible. You know, Johnson, I think it can still be a solid running back too, but... I also think his odds of, you know, breaking into running back one territory are pretty slim if this is how the work's going to be divvied. What I'm more
0: interested in watching from this point is how efficient the offense is going to be and also what Arizona is going to be as a matchup. I mean, you know, maybe six weeks from now, we're looking back and saying, oh, Arizona was just a pretty good run defense this year. It kind of makes sense mm-hmm. now. Carry on Johnson's been okay since then. And, you know, it's year one under a new offensive coordinator in Detroit, so... Maybe he's a little uh, rusty in getting the right running back in there to get certain touches. So uh, it's a situation to watch, and I'm not saying that there is no reason for any concern on on Johnson, but I am not panicking yet and not saying, oh, God, this is what we were scared of. It's coming to fruition now. This guy's a bust.
1: Yeah, you, I would not be looking to sell on Johnson right now, and I might even be looking to buy him if his owner is selling on the cheap. I have also seen people suggest that it's time to go ahead and sell pieces
0: of the Vikings passing game. And I I don't know, I guess you could look into prices if you want to, but this is not a good time to do that, I don't think, because they just threw 10 passes against Atlanta. I mean, we knew Minnesota was going to go run heavy this year, so that shouldn't shock anybody. But the run heaviest team in the league is not going to throw just 10 passes again all season. Last year Seattle was the most run heavy team in the league. They averaged 26.7 pass attempts per game. So if we do if we triple the passing from Sunday's Minnesota game, then we get mm-hmm. Adam Thielen from 3 targets to 9 at the same right. share and that is absolutely not a worrisome level for him. We had a banged up Stefan Diggs going in who is well documentedly not a good player when he is banged up, not a mm-hmm. not a reliable fantasy asset. So we knew going in that it might be a rough week for Stefan Diggs. And then, you know, when they jump out to an early lead, it's only going to motivate this team to, to keep running the ball more. But just to push further, like how what an anomaly this is to only throw the ball 10 times since 2000. That was just the 10th game with 10 pass attempts or fewer. There have only been 330 total games of 20 or fewer pass attempts in that span. That's about 17 per season, and 17 per season among of 512 team games. This just is not something that happens very often, and it's not something to worry about.
1: Yeah, I think it's a buying opportunity, at least on Adam Thielen. I mean, Diggs worries me a little bit just that he's already banged up this early in the season, and he's had durability concerns, but I, I'd be buying Thielen if his owner is, you know, ready to cut the cord on him. Vikings go up in this game 14 zip, like halfway through the first quarter. They were up 21 zip before halftime. So it's just a game flow thing. We're, we're not we're not going to see this again. Um, I think, you know, again, at least Adam Thielen I'd be trying to buy. Kyle Rudolph had the goose egg. He was on the field for every single Viking snap, though, 100% snap rates. Even Rudolph, I think for me, you know, still still is in the mix as a guy that we can use uh, when the spot is right. And in Minnesota, the spot's going to be right in games where we think they won't be playing the lead. And that really starts to speak, I think, when they're in Green Bay. I think we're going to see that passing volume go way, way up this week. I mean,
0: even Stephon Diggs, imagine how much the Stephon Diggs owner is panicking right now. (laughs) Let's say you've got, you're sitting on like Sammy Watkins, Tyrell Williams, you know, I don't know, several other of the middle of the draft wideouts, Allen Robinson, Alshon Jeffrey. Let's say you got all your wideouts in that range. You're in pretty good shape. Mm -hmm. I I say go ahead and grab Stefan Diggs from somebody who's panicking, you know, with some kind of multiplayer deal. I'm not saying just give one of those wideouts away for him right now, but stash him, wait out the hamstring issue, and you could have a top 15 wide receiver from like week four on.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we, we know we love Tyrell Williams, but I would most definitely give him up for Stephon Diggs. I mean, even in this same Vikings-Falcons game, I think Calvin Ridley, who scored another touchdown, um, you know, he's someone you could try to use. Yeah, I, I, again, I think these Vikings wideouts are buys right now. The Browns offense, I didn't even take
0: notes for this. I didn't look up any stats. Yeah. I think we're going to look back on this game at the end of the season and say, hey, remember in week one when Cleveland had its worst game of the season?
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's most likely. I mean, we, we knew if there was a concern in Cleveland, it was the offensive line. And Baker Mayfield was sacked five times in this game. I went over to, to Pro Football Focus to look at how, how often Baker was pressured on his dropbacks. I expected him to be near the top of the league in week one. He was actually just 22nd among the 32 quarterbacks in the percentage of dropbacks that he was pressured. So I, I don't think it was all the offensive line in this game. I mean, th- there's new wrinkles to the offense, I'm sure, with Todd Monk in there. They're obviously working Odell Beckham in, who, you know, Beckham missed a lot of the summer with, with injury. So, yeah, I think this is an offense that, that's just going to settle in. I think it'll be fine.
0: And frankly, I think in football, maybe even more so than most other sports, when things, when you go into the game with this huge expectation, you're playing at home, you're suddenly looked at as a contender. And then all of a sudden, this opponent that's not supposed to be as good as you just like punches you in the lip. You're yep. like, oh my God, what's going on? And then scrambling, and before you know it, it, it the game's just out of hand. I, I think we're going to see a, a different team in week two. I think week one is going to stand out by the end. There, you know, there might be some other bumps, but I'm not going to spend week two worrying about any of the Browns' assets that I have on my team.
1: Yeah, I, I think going on the road here for week two, um, and they're you know getting a nice a nice primetime game against the Jets on Monday night is pro- probably a good thing for the Browns and their offense.
0: And let's see about this Tennessee team going forward. I, I feel yeah. like they're perennially a, a team that nobody thinks much of, and then they end up somewhere around eight and eight, nine and seven, competing for the AFC South. And the defense has been kind of slowly building for several years now, so that's quite possible that the Titans just end up the year being a pretty solid defense too.
1: Yeah, I, I already view that. I think right now is like a, a top ten defense. I mean, I think the the secondary is talented. They add, added Cameron Wake, so yeah, de- definitely a defense to be wary of when you're, you know, looking at matchups every week. I'll wrap up this section with Tyler
0: Lockett and he's kind of the wide receiver version of carry on Johnson. It's something to watch, but two targets is not going to happen very often. He had four games of two targets last year and he only had 70 total targets. I think even if he falls short of like the 120, that's kind of the hopeful level for Tyler Lockett to get to now that he's a number one receiver I don't think we're going to see many more two-target games. He had just four games of fewer than four last year. We knew volume would be low. You know, if the offense remains efficient, he'll be okay. If he ends up short of 100 total targets, then it'll be a disappointing season. But I don't think it'll be like a bust season at what most people were paying for him.
1: Yeah, and of course in typical Tyler Lockett fashion, he takes one of his two targets for like a forty yard touchdown. So it's not even like he killed you if you played him this week. Um yeah, yeah, a ten percent target share for Lockett, that's not gonna continue. The overall passing volume in Seattle, you know, twenty attempts for Wilson in week one is the concern. But again, Lockett should remain super efficient.
0: And like I said earlier, they're even they're not gonna pass just twenty times every game. They averaged twenty six point seven attempts per game last year, so that's even low for them.
1: Yep. All right. What else do you have in this section? Yeah. So I'm not worried about, I'm just going to throw out two offenses here that struggle in week one, the Falcons offense and the Steelers offense. I think both those teams went on the road to face what I I'd consider top five defenses. I'm not really concerned about any of the guys that we were, you know, counting on, on those two offenses.
0: I will say for, I, I agree with you on Atlanta. I will say, Pittsburgh, it's kind of a different situation because the only guy that I would really say I was going into the season, well, two guys that I was counting on going into the season were Juju Smith-Buster and James Conner, and I'm not yet worried that those guys are going to let me down. I think we kind of appropriately pushed Ben Roethlisberger down, so if we're talking about him as like a top eight quarterback, then yeah, I'd be worried that he has that kind of upside again, but if we're talking about him as somebody that we were drafting at like outside the top 14, then I agree. I'm not particularly worried. And same deal with the second, third, fourth receivers, Dante Moncrief and and the other guys. Wasn't expecting a whole lot, so I'm not really changing my view on them yet.
1: Sure, yeah. I think week two here will be telling for Ben Roethlisberger because he's at home for a beatable Seahawks defense. So, you know, in years past with Antonio Brown, this is a spot we would really like him. If he kind of underwhelms again this week, I I think it'll be time to, you know, back off him as, as even a starter when he's at home. One
0: guy that I want to watch going forward is Vance McDonald, because I I spent most of the summer not paying what it costs to get him. And then right at the end of August, I was like, am I underrating him? Is he going to be their number two pass catcher here? Bought him a couple times. So I'm curious to see if Sunday night's game ends up being a blip for him or if he's going to disappoint.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think his usage was okay. I mean, at least his snap count, I think, was up in in the 70s. And it it was just a complete dud from the Steelers offense I I think Vance will be fine going forward I am worried about Kenyon Drake shares any Kenyon
0: Drake shares stopped (laughs) buying him after a little while fortunately you know once that once he got hurt I think was the thing that really changed it and then I never really jumped all the way back in at that point but any of my Kenyon Drake shares I'm worried about now because that team is so bad I don't think he's going to be startable at any point
1: I kept buying Drake unfortunately as he was you know getting cheaper and cheaper with that injury Miami's offense isn't going to be that bad. I don't, I don't think, and I say that with hesitation. But, um, yeah, the, the Finns only ran fifty plays in Week One, and you know that's going to be the norm. They're going to be down there, but I think you know you can expect a bit more than that going forward. I still wish they'd give Drake a bigger piece of the backfield pie. Um, it was 54% of the snaps for Drake in week one versus 40 for Kalen Balazs, four carries and three targets for Kenyon Drake, obviously not going to get it done. It was five carries and, and one target for Balazs. So, you know, basically a 50-50 split. And if you're getting only 50% in this Finns offense, yeah, that's that's not going to be good enough for Kenyon Drake. Yeah. I wonder if his agent was one of the ones that had to make calls looking for trades this week. I, I hope so. I would love to see him go anywhere else. Absolutely,
0: and another guy. You know, I, I as I was writing it down, and looking into it, I think I got a little less worried. But mm-hmm. Todd Gurley, I'm certainly at least concerned about right now. So the work ended up being okay. Led the team in carries. Led the team in total yards. And it might end up being fine. The frustrating part, of course, is that Malcolm Brown scored both of the red zone rushing touchdowns. Mm -hmm. Todd Gurley didn't get a – he got one carry inside the red zone. Now, I was looking further into the usage, and it looks like – I haven't watched that game to track exactly who's on the field at every turn. But based on the work from the game log – it looked like Todd Gurley was the guy for the first three series. Then they alternated through the second and third quarter. Yep. And then the fourth quarter, it was all Todd Gurley again. So that makes me worry a little bit less. And I think it was a little bit more just bad luck mm-hmm. that Malcolm Brown got those carries. Because one touchdown came right at the start of a drive that where they got the ball in the red zone following a Cam Newton fumble, and it was just Malcolm Brown's turn to be in the game. And like I said, otherwise they were just alternating, and the other drive where he scored was a Malcolm Brown drive the whole way
1: Yeah, I'm kind of with you there. It didn't look to me that Gurley was, you know, purposefully pulled near the goal line. I don't think that's going to be a thing. I think this was mostly unlucky that he didn't get either of those two scores. Seventy percent snap rate for Gurley in this one. You know he, that that's down. He was up around eighty-five to to ninety-five percent when he was healthy last year. But seventy also still that's going to be a top ten mark if he if he plays seventy percent of the snaps over the course of the season at running back. Gurley still too ninth in. PFF's elusive rating among 34 running backs with 10 plus attempts. So he, he was he was effective. Now Malcolm Brown was number 1 among those 34 running backs with 10 plus attempts. So I you know I don't think Malcolm Brown's going away. I think it's going to be, you know, something similar to this going forward like a 60-40 split in favor of Todd Gurley. The other note on Gurley, and I think what really made him—I guess—semi-disappointing in Week One was that he saw just one target. That looks fluky to me too, because he he ran a route on thirty of Jared Goff's forty-four dropbacks. So you know he was out there with the potential to be targeted, just didn't happen. Gurley, to me, he's not going to be a top-five running back this season, but I do still think if you know if that knee holds up, I I think he's going to pay off the second-round price tag a lot of people paid to get him.
0: Yeah, I was worried about him more coming out of Sunday than I am at the moment. Uh, so my takeaway right now is that I think we underrated slash didn't have enough info on Malcolm Brown as opposed to, oh my God, Todd Gurley is going to kill us
1: this year. Yeah, and we mentioned Malcolm Brown. And we, I think we said all summer that he was a better value than Daryl Henderson in drafts. But yeah, I, I wish we had more aggressively targeted Malcolm Brown in dress.
0: Yeah, and when I say we, I don't mean you and I were ignoring him while everybody else was buying him. Right. I mean, collectively fantasy underrated Malcolm Brown heading into the season. I'm sure that that's, you know, by design, some from the Rams. They're not going to be like, Hey, everyone, Malcolm Brown's pretty good. That's why we brought him back. Watch. We're going to hand him the ball quite a bit and he's going to do well with it. Yeah.
1: I mean, it it was telling that he, he didn't hit the field at all in in the preseason. What else do you have that you are worried about after week one? I'm worried about being too low on Le'Veon Bell. And I I don't, (laughs) I don't think I have a single share of Le'Veon Bell in the, you know, 20 plus drafts I did encouraging opener for him a hundred percent snap rate he was on the field for every single one of the jets offensive snaps 17 carries nine targets so he got monster usage he was also tied for second among all running backs with nine missed tackles forced in week one he was sixth among those 34 running backs with 10 plus attempts in elusive rating so he looks good he got a ton of touches and opportunities so you know I Bell, if you Took him anywhere in the back half of round one. It, it looks like it was a good pick.
0: Yeah, and they also ran the ball inefficiently. So, I mean, I, I'm open to the possibility that Le'Veon Bell ends up making us pay for not drafting him. I I wouldn't say I'm flipping out about it yet, though, because I think other players in that range can end up being fine as well. But, yeah, I, I think all along it was like, well, what if he is Le'Veon Bell? What if the Jets are good? So it, that's kind of the reverse of carry on Johnson right now, where I'm like, yeah, this one might end up coming back to bite me, but I'm not quite ready to be scared of it yet. I mean, especially because he went for 60 yards on 17 carries against a bills defense that for the past couple of years has been much weaker against the run than it has been against the pass.
1: Yeah, that, that's fair. Um, I think efficiency, especially on the ground still might be a concern, but you know, if the guy is going to get 26 opportunities, it's not, it's not going to matter. Right.
0: Anything else that you are uh, worried about? Nope. That's all I'm worried about. All right. Good. (laughs) Uh, So let's get now to all of the wide receivers on the waiver wire this week and sorting those guys out. Uh, Of course, we've got a a list of them in the free agent focus. We have them, you know, ranked by default by the FAAB that we're recommending, you know, the, the amount of your budget that we recommend bidding to try to get these guys off of waivers versus your league mates. The names are going to vary by league. For me, though, Jared, I I split them up into tiers. Mm -hmm. And I've got John Brown, Jamison Crowder, and Terry McLaurin as the top three.
1: No Michael Gallup? Are you assuming he's already rostered?
0: Yeah, I guess I was treating Michael Gallup as already rostered. I
1: haven't even checked to see what his own rate is on ESPN. Yeah, it it seems to me that he was sort of going in the same range as John Brown. But yeah, if Gallup's available, for me, John Brown and Michael Gallup would be the clear top two. And then I, I would add Jamison Crowder to that tier. In PPR leagues, I mean, it was 17 targets and 14 catches for Jamison Crowder. I think he already looks like the best bet to lead the Jets in targets. So yeah, those three up top. And then I'm with you, though. Terry McLaurin would be my top guy among the rest.
0: Where I struggle is... Whether to separate Terry McLaurin and Marquise Brown, Mm -hmm. for me, I'm still a little bit leery of Marquise Brown coming off that foot injury and playing in an offense that's going to be run heavy. I think that we're going to end up looking back and saying week one was by far his biggest outing of the season. I think he will have some other big spots because of the speed. But if I'm choosing between them, I'm trusting Terry McLaurin right now more than I am Marquise Brown. Not by a wide margin, but a little bit more. Yeah, me
1: too. They're probably in the same tier for me, but I would prefer and I would prioritize Terry McLaren. It's really just a volume thing. You now I think the Redskins are going to throw you know a hundred to 150 more passes than the Ravens this season, so that that sort of makes it tough for Brown to you know beat out McLaren.
0: And then Marquise Brown and John Ross are are right together for me in the next tier. The thing working in Marquise Brown's favor is that he's got a path to be Baltimore's number one wideout. I don't know that the same is quite true for John Ross because Tyler Boyd's there. A.J. Green might be coming back at some point. But I also think it's not outside of the realm of possibilities that John Ross finishes this season as the top receiver for the Bengals, even if it's just in receiving yards.
1: Yeah, I have John Ross as my number three guy here, too. And and, I think he could be a guy you plug into your starting lineup, at least until A.J. Green returns. The uh, Bengals' next four opponents, San Francisco this week, which I think is a usable matchup for Ross. The Bills in week three, that's that's a tough one. But after that, the Steelers and Cardinals. So I think Ross could be usable for those two weeks as well. Yeah, I agree. And then kind of the last tier that I'm looking at here is... The
0: post Tyreek Hill Chiefs, so um, Nicole Hardman and Demarcus Robinson, AJ Brown, Danny Amendola. I'm not super interested in this group. If it's a deeper league, I'll take one of these guys. But I don't think that any of these four is going to turn into a reliable fantasy starting option for leagues of 12 teams or fewer.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Hardman is the guy who excites me most and the guy who I would go after hardest among this group. He played ahead of Demarcus Robinson after Tyreek Hill exited that week one game. Uh, Hardman outsnapped Robinson 53 to 43. He ran three more routes than Robinson did. And you know, remember, Hardman is the guy the Chiefs drafted pretty much to be the Tyreek Hill replacement when we didn't know if Hill was going to be facing a suspension. So Hardman, not a guy I'd want to use in week two fantasy lineups, but if Tyreek Hill is going to miss multiple games, and it sounds like there's still a chance he's placed on short-term IR, which would knock him out for eight weeks. um, Yeah, I think in that case, going to be weeks where he's going to be a fantasy option.
0: Yeah, I think Hardman's a good safety net this week where you put him you know third in your priority list you miss out on the top two guys and you end up catching him with a couple of bucks and right. stash him on your bench see what happens with him certainly the situation makes him more attractive than you know otherwise the package that he brings to the table would
1: yep exactly and then yeah so um i have aj brown next Demarcus robinson and then danny Amendola would be my last guy, I, I think, you know, we, we just saw Amandola's best game of the season. The matchup was great against Arizona. And again, between the elevated pace of the Cardinals and overtime, the, the Lions ran 88 snaps in that game. So, you know, that that's like 30% more than they're going to run most weeks. Yeah, he's Cole Beasley. Um, yeah, yeah. Cole, Cole Beasley with the Cowboys, I should say. <laughs> yeah,
0: sounds right. Uh, you got any more receivers before we move on to the defenses? Nope, let's do defenses. Streaming defenses for week two. I've actually been surprised at how available Houston is on that front. Yeah, Only just 26% of ESPN leagues. That would easily be my top pickup because heading into week two, they've got Gardner Minshew and, <laughs> and the Jaguars
1: marching in. The nearly perfect Gardner Minshew in week one. But no, yeah. I'm with you. The Texans would easily be my number one choice. Yeah, Minshew still a sixth round rookie making his first start on the road against J.J. Watt. So Texans seem like a good bet.
0: Yeah, if Houston's not available, Panthers, I think, 11% owned, so they should be available uh, in most places. They, of course, get Jameis Winston next on Thursday night. Bucks coming off four turnovers against the Niners, and there were two other fumbles of theirs that they recovered, so it could have been even worse.
1: Yep, so for this week, I prefer the Panthers over the Cowboys, who I think are your other option here. The Cowboys, 27% owned on ESPN. But I might just grab the Cowboys now, because they get the Dolphins next week, and the Cowboys get the... Redskins this week, which is a fine matchup. So I would almost prioritize them just to have them for that Dolphins matchup in week three.
0: I agree. I was looking at the week three matchup and we're going to do this going forward this season because as streaming defenses gets more popular, you're going to have to start looking ahead. That matchup with Miami in week three, even though, as you said, I think Carolina is a better option than Dallas for this week. Mm -hmm. If you're just going to have one defense rostered, I would go ahead and grab Dallas because I think, like you said, they're fine against Washington this week, and they look stellar against Miami at home next week. The Cowboys are 27% owned on ESPN, and they're coming off a kind of lackluster fantasy performance against the Giants, so we might see Dallas get more available in fantasy
1: leagues. Yep, so the Cowboys would be my top option for week three, and then my number two option would be the Packers, who are at home For the Broncos. That that Packers defense looked really good. And they made some additions this offseason, looked really good against the Bears in week ones. I I think that could be a defense we're using quite a bit this season.
0: I'm with you. I've got them down as well. And they're only 3% owned on ESPN. So you can probably find Green Bay available pretty much everywhere. And I think the matchup with Minnesota this week is going to make it easier to just grab them, even if you wait past waivers and then just yeah. claim Green Bay in the first-come, 1st first serve period where you don't have to, to spend anything for them. I think you'll find Green Bay available.
1: Yep, I like it. That's going
0: to do it for this Tuesday podcast recap in week one. Head over to DraftSharks.com now for all the help you need in navigating your week two waiver wire and then getting your lineup set for those week two contests we will be back here thursday for the week two preview podcast of course you can also find us on twitter at draft sharks jared is at smola ds i am at shalf ds it's s-c-h-a-u-f for jared small and the rest of the DraftSharks crew i'm Matt shalf saying thanks so much for swimming with us